before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to take a second and talk about Nautical Eye. Nautical Eye is an app that will give you full environmental intelligence. What exactly does that mean? It means it's the best weather app I've ever used. Nautical Eye gives you everything you need to know. It has satellites to tell you water temp, ocean color, water quality, wave heights, tides, and the best radars available. It gives you fishing reports and navigational charts to help you venture into your next outdoor experience. I highly recommend Nautical Eye, the best weather app you'll ever use. Today on the Real Guy podcast, we have Rachel Silverstein of the Miami Waterkeepers. The Miami Waterkeepers has done great work focusing on clean water and ecosystem protection. Rachel has become a leader here in South Florida in our fight for clean water. I hope you enjoy this episode with Rachel Silverstein from the Miami Waterkeepers. Clear the airways. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is the Real Guy Podcast. It was um, truly gut-wrenching. And every day we thought it was going to be over. And then there were more fish struggling, gasping for air, showing up dead. It was, you know, really horrific. And, um, you know, clean water is really what makes Miami Miami. And just to see the bay turn into a dead zone before our eyes was... Um, alarming and and heartbreaking. Right. Now on the website, I see you in, um, well, 2014 is when Miami Waterkeepers started? So we were actually founded in 2010. So this is our our 10th anniversary this year. Awesome. And um, yeah, we actually produced a three-part docu-series about the past, present, and future of Miami's water story. So definitely check that out. Um, If you haven't seen it, it's called Waves of Change. And um, I uh, started as Waterkeeper in 2014. Okay, so you started in 2014, but it was around since 2010. Yes. Now, how the heck did you fall into that? That's a great question. (laughs) Um, So I, um, um, I came to University of Miami for graduate school from Columbia And I studied in a professor named Andrew Baker's lab, studying uh, the effect of climate change on corals. And um, I, after that, went to D.C. and uh, worked for the Senate Commerce Committee on on ocean policy. Mm -hmm. And and I really wanted to come back to Miami and work on conservation to, um, you know, protect the water that I loved here while I was studying for graduate school that I would dive in and um, visit the reefs. And um, a friend of mine, I, you know, I actually, I should start the story long before this when I, I interned at the San Diego Waterkeeper because I grew up in California. And mm-hmm. um, I, it was the year that they were hosting all of the Waterkeepers because Waterkeeper is, um, Alliance is actually an international network of clean water advocacy groups like Miami Waterkeeper, but they're all over the world on all sorts of different bodies of water. And while I was interning at the San Diego Waterkeeper, um, they had the conference where all of the waterkeepers got together from all over the world um, for this multi-day conference. And I was so inspired by all of their stories and the work they were doing. And then when I came to Miami, there wasn't a waterkeeper group here yet. 
And I always had thought, oh, I'm going to start one one day. And then while I was in graduate school, somebody started it. And I was like, oh, she stole my dream. Uh, but I reached <laughs> out to her and um, Alexis Siegel is her name. And she was the first waterkeeper of, Ma- of Miami Waterkeeper, which was then called Biscayne Bay Waterkeeper. And um, I became friends with her and worked with her on projects. And um, we uh, stayed in really close touch. And then she actually went to D.C. to do a fellowship. And there was nobody at the Waterkeeper organization in Miami when I was finishing up my work on the Senate Commerce Committee. And so when I was coming back to Miami, she was going to D.C. We kind of switched places. Um, And so I took over the Waterkeeper organization here um, in 2014 and we changed the name to Miami Waterkeeper and uh, the rest is history. Timing. Timing's everything, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it all, it all worked out. Yeah, very good. Very good. Now, um, so the water um, was pretty much in your blood from San Diego, right? Absolutely, and, yeah. Yeah, but after spending a, um, a decade or better on Biscayne Bay, has it has it has it grown on you? Yeah, you know, I my fascination with the water is really the creatures and critters that live in and around it, and I I you know just love diving and um, exploring all the nooks and crannies on a reef and seeing all of the different ways that life life has found to exist there, and um, you know what I'm learning more and more as you know, Miami Waterkeeper is all of the ways that um, our living right next to the water puts pressure on the water and how we interact with the water and what a difference our um, policies for how we use the land impact the water. Right. And one of the things that I never really appreciated about Florida is having grown up in California was really how engineered the landscape is here in Florida because we've you know drained the Everglades, we've channelized the water into canals, um, and so it's it's very much an artificial landscape here and um, in a lot of ways. And when I was driving around, I was didn't really think what what it meant that there was there were canals everywhere, um, or what it meant that we were living you know right next to the Everglades. And so I've really had an appreciation for how um, us living in this beautiful part of the world has, has changed the environment here and, and the interaction with it. Right. Right. The, um, yeah, one of the things that I always talk about when we're talking about environmental issues, um, here in Fort Lauderdale, like people think it's such an overwhelming, um, task to start fixing, fixing things. And I kind of flip it around. I said, the overwhelming task was destroying everything and making it habitable for people. I mean, that was crazy insane. I don't think that um, reversing that is quite as crazy insane as developing it. Do you have that same opinion? That's a great way to look at it, actually. <laughs> yeah, right? and, you know, like one of the issues that we work on a lot, for example, is um, is septic tanks. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of people don't realize how many septic tanks we have here in South Florida in really urban areas. Usually they're, you know, in, in farms or, um, you know, in fields, things like that. But we have whole parts of our community that are, are still on septic. And um, we keep hearing about how much it costs to transition everything into 
and to sewer, even though back in the 70s, for example, Miami-Dade County uh, said we, we need to get rid of our septic tanks um, and set out a plan to do that, but they never did. And we still have over 100,000 of them just here. Um, and, you know, we keep hearing about the cost of transitioning, getting rid of, we keep, we keep hearing about the cost of those septic tanks um, and putting them onto the sewer uh, network. But the real cost is like, what happens if you don't do that? Right. And, all of, and all of these septic tanks flood and, and the water tables rising underground. And, and, you know, you have at least 50,000 plus properties in Miami-Dade County alone that already have septic tanks that don't work. So those, that's right. 50,000 properties without functioning waste infrastructure. And that's really an emergency. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The, um, I mean, you obviously know about the... Um, issues we've had here with the sewage now granted a lot of this is um you know just outdated infrastructure but uh broward county has its share of septic still going on Mm -hmm. and um you know i talk about this in the fishing world all the time is the third world countries that are taking over the fishing and the diving market um simply taking market share from us that we have forfeited um People would much rather come to South Florida to experience that kind of stuff. But instead, we've squandered it, and now they're going to just about any place. They'll travel the world to see cool, clean water. And um, I think when you talk about costs, they have to be feeling, the politicians and the governor and stuff have to start realizing that they're feeling the cost now. Do you you feel that way? Do you think it's registering? You know, I think we've seen a lot of progress and we have some great leaders who are pushing for clean water, who understand the connection between clean water and our economy, particularly here in Florida, where it's, you know, the major industry. Um, But I think um, there are very real economic costs and burdens to pollution. And one of those is, is that, that you pointed out, like um, if we have, I think it's something like 80% of visitors who come to South Florida go to the, go in the water while they're here. So if you have water that's not clean um, for swimming in, or um, you can't fish in, or you can't dive in, that's going to really affect, you know, one of the the biggest industries here are tourism. People want to live near the water. That's going to affect our real estate values if, if the water, you know, is a dead zone. Right. So. yeah, I think more and more, I think we have to start calculating those costs into our decision making. Yeah, I would imagine. So do you think in um, I, like one of the things that I that, that totally I totally buy into is I, I think that the local governments all the way up to the state government, even the federal government. But um, I believe they suppress a lot of the news about how bad the water is simply because of the um, short-term impact that it's going to take on us. Like, I firmly believe that, like here in Fort Lauderdale, our leaders know how bad our water is and how polluted our water is. But to get them to come out and tell the public about it, that's another whole issue. And I feel that that starts at the smallest part of government and goes all the way up. Do you feel that way or do you think I'm mistaken? No. So um, I think you bring up a really good point, Jeff. And 
uh, one of our major initiatives is to share with the public um, before you go in the water and you, you use the water, um, we want to let you know how clean the water is. So one of the things um, that the state has a, a program called the, uh, the state has a program called the Healthy Beaches Program. And that program monitors beach locations weekly um, for bacteria levels. And it puts that information on their website. But the information is, like you said, not particularly well publicized. And it's hard to find on their website. And most people don't like check the Department of Health's website before they go to the beach to find out right. if the water's clean. Um, so well, we have an app that was developed by Waterkeepers in Canada. And it's called Swim Guide, and it's a free app that you can download. And before you go to the beach, um, you can check the app. And we put the Department of Health's water quality data um, and an organization called Surfrider who monitors the data and um, the additional sites that Miami Waterkeeper has started monitoring all into the Swim Guide app so that you can have the latest water quality data before you go get in the water. Um, and we realized that there were a lot of locations that weren't on the beaches that weren't part of the healthy beaches program that really needed monitoring because people were swimming or um, diving or fishing or boating in those areas. And so we, right. we actually started monitoring an additional 11 sites um, in Miami-Dade County. And we have all that information on Swim Guide. Um, and we actually just started a partnership with the city of Fort Lauderdale to start monitoring 10 sites around Fort Lauderdale where we know people are recreating and using the water. And so all that information will be on Swim Guide as well. That's awesome. You know, the um, the deal that happened here in Fort Lauderdale where you're going to start testing here, I wrote that down. We had two wins so far this year as far as uh, Fort Lauderdale and our fight for our clean water. The first win was um, after the um, sewage spills and stuff. We had a big protest, and we demanded that the city start taking it a priority. And... Um, at least in the election cycle this year, they talked about water quality as being the number one topic in the election. The mm -hmm. second win, Rachel, mm -hmm. was that the Miami waterkeepers came down here and tested our water. <laughs> oh, I was so praying that that was going to happen. And I called everybody I could that I thought might help make it happen. I was like, that's exactly what we need is some independent people doing the water test that'll give it to us straight. And, um, Thank you for supporting Miami Waterkeeper. We're thrilled to, you know, be working on that project and sharing that information with everybody in Fort Lauderdale. Now, have you been able to develop any relationship with any of our local officials? Because I've tried, and um, so far they've been very good and receptive and spoken with us. You know, we we will be reaching out um, very soon because um, one of the other issues that we work on a lot is coral reef protection. Um, and this is, of course, of great interest to the fishing community, um, because if you lose the corals, you lose the fish that live in and around the corals. And we've already lost over 80 percent of our reef here in Florida since the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, and we just had a major dredging project in the port of Miami that deepened and widened the shipping channel that crosses the reef tract. And we um, found that over 560,000 corals were killed in that dredging project in Miami. And so we actually brought a four-year-long Endangered Species Act lawsuit uh, against the Army Corps of Engineers for that damage. And in the middle of that, they actually went up to Broward and um, authorized dredging of the, um, the channel at Port Everglades. Right. And they didn't 
correct any of the mistakes that they made in Miami or really even discuss the disaster that they caused in Miami at all. Um, and we brought another lawsuit and have since delayed that project since it was supposed to start in 2017 um, and have forced them to redo all of their environmental assessments of the project. Hmm. Um, and now, now it's been years that we've been waiting for the new environmental assessments. They're getting released December 18th. Um, so they're, they're going to come out very soon. And then there's going to be a period for the public to comment on them. So it's, we're going to be doing a big outreach campaign and really encourage everyone to weigh in and, you know, let the Army Corps and the county know how important coral reefs are to you. And it's a really good engagement opportunity because we need to make sure that those reefs are protected uh, as much as possible. That's a call to action. Call to action. There you go. That's it. I'm going to help you with the call to action. That and promote would be amazing. That. Please. Uh, yeah, that, it's going to, there's going to be public meetings. I think um, in January and we really need everybody to show up and make their voice heard uh, for their reefs. Right. Well, I'm no reef expert, but I am a tarpon expert and I've been fishing Port Everglades and um, government cut um, since 1983. And um, the one thing I can tell you about that last dredge in government cut is that changed the tarpon population for the city of Miami. Like you could not imagine. The tarpon that used to hang out in government cut before that dredge was phenomenal. Nothing less than phenomenal. And since that dredge, it's been fairly pathetic. Wow. And, um, that is. Yeah. Very it's hard to swallow. Yeah. And now I'm getting ready to watch them do it right here in my backyard in Port Everglades. And I've been watching the, the engineers run around and they're doing all this, you know, surveying and testing and stuff that they say they need to do. But, um, I really hope that uh, at the last minute they uh, make some adjustments because if they do, well, here in Fort Lauderdale, we don't have near as much to lose. We damn near killed everything as it is, unfortunately. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Um, well, you know, the the Fort Lauderdale or, Bra or Port Everglades project is going to involve blasting and it's going to be twice as long as the Port Miami project. You're not making me um, smile over here. So we really need everybody to, to weigh in on that one. And, um, you know, we've already successfully gotten it delayed several years, but I think they're planning to have it start now in 2022. Right. Um, right. So we need to do everything we can to make sure the protections are as strong as possible um, for the reef and other wildlife that are going to be impacted by things like blasting. Yeah. No, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And, um, I don't know. Sometimes I just feel like the government is, I don't know, like, are they even human? Like, how do you go along with stuff like this, knowing that people like you are giving them the data to telling, telling them, you know, what's happening with the reef or the fish or whatever it may be. It's really, really tough. But I wanted to, um, I wanted to commend you on the team that I saw at the Miami Waterkeepers. I was watching, I was looking at the website and I was like, man, look at the team this, that they have. Um, how much energy and how much time did you spend putting together a team like that? My goodness, I have to tell you, we have an incredible, incredible team at Miami Waterkeeper. And um, we, people are not working at Miami Waterkeeper for the big bucks. They're doing it because they're really passionate about the water. Right. And everybody on the team gives it their all every day. And especially this year, it's been, you know, it's been challenging for everybody. And uh, we've had to rethink how we operate, working from home, um, figuring out how to still reach reach kids and students 
safely um, and, and virtually, how to engage the public. And, and uh, the team has been unbelievable at pivoting to, to put a lot of our programs online, like our Thousand Eyes on the Water program. Um, it used to be in person, but in about an hour, you can take our online training and learn how to observe, document, and report pollution um, that you might see going about your daily life. So recommend everybody check that out on our website. Um, but this, the team is really folks who are experts in outreach and education, experts in science, and experts in uh, law and policy. And so we have a really multidisciplinary team um, of people who are extremely dedicated, and that's the only way we've been able to do any of this work. No, team is team is everything. Um, one of the things that has baffled me, um, and realize I've only been public about the fight for clean water for about three years now, and um, one of the things that just boggles my mind is it's so hard to motivate people that boaters, fishermen, surfers, the people that you would think would be easy to motivate to actually get off their ass and do something. It's extremely hard to motivate them. Do you have any tricks or any keys that you've been able to use over the years that you might want to share with me? I was hoping you'd have some some for me, Jeff. Okay. So, so, you know, so it's like common battles. You know, I think it's always difficult um, because folks are really busy and have, everybody has a lot going on in their lives. And, um, some of they, some of this stuff is really hard to access and to understand. And you have to take a lot of time to show up at meetings or make calls or write letters. And and that's always a challenge. But I think one of the, the silver linings for me from the fish kill, um, was really seeing the incredible response of the community to that crisis and really saw how much people love and care about this game bay and, Uh, the wildlife that lives in and around it. And um, we had so much dead fish wash up on the shore and we, we put out a call to have people pick it up because we were really concerned that it would decay and cause even more water quality problems. And dozens and dozens of people showed up on their Saturday to like pick up dead rotting fish um, in order to help the bay. (laughs) We put out this call. So we were really touched um, by how the community came together in that crisis moment. And um, I think a lot of people became aware and, and engaged about the issues that are, that Biscayne Bay is facing and, and really the dire state that it's in. And that's true of, of a lot of our waterways. And I think something similar happened in Fort Lauderdale with all of these sewage spills. So I think um, obviously we never want to have water quality um, crises forming or showing up, but um, they do bring people together and they are an important opportunity when they do happen to educate and inform and engage people um, to the, to the broader problems and the mission. Yeah. Yeah. I just, um, I just had um, this guy, Mark Hyman on my boat who does a show called uh, inside your world investigates kind of like a 60 minutes type show. And he was telling me, well, he said the verbiage is a dead whale's more valuable than a live whale at this point, because a dead whale will spark the emotions and motivate people to actually do something. And um, he said, it's a sad state of affairs. He says, but you know, in a weird way, it's the truth. Yeah, it's, um, it's, 
It is very sad, but I do think, you know, in particular, the fishing community is out on the water so much and has such a close connection with what's going on on the ground um, that, you know, you have a really unique perspective to do things like, you know, report back about what, what the, what's happening with the fish populations. Did you see a plume? Do you smell something strange? Um, um, we need right. to know all that information and, and we can really act quickly um, in some cases to stop events from getting out of control and becoming crisis. Um, so, um, for example, a kayaker spotted a massive multi-million gallon sewage leak earlier this year uh, near the Alita River. And, um, you know, we, we've had people report big spills to us, big leaks um, and, and all sorts of problems going on on the water. So what we really need is everybody's eyes on the water um, as our collective backyard to really take ownership of that and, and join together in protecting it. Yeah. The, um, you know, I've been in this fishing game a long time and my dad was in it long before me. And this is the first time that I can ever recall the fishermen and the um, environmentalist um, working hand to hand and, so closely there's always bits and pieces of it and you see some sparks of it here and there but now um i've never seen it i've never seen this much interaction back and forth between the fishing the fishermen the people that are out there over 200 days a year and the people like yourself and now maybe a little bit of work and um a little bit of luck that maybe some of the local and state officials will start listening more Absolutely. and more Absolutely. And um, together we have a really loud voice um, yes. and a lot of shared interest. Well, I did a podcast with um, Dave Marciano, the guy from Wicked Tuna. Oh, and he firm- yeah, he firmly believes that the government likes it when all of us are divided and are, have a whole bunch of different agendas because it's way easier for them to manage and control. Oh, and he spoke about that in depth. And uh, I had no clue he had history with that, but he has a ton of it. And um it was uh, having him on the podcast, you know, was more of a fun thing. And then it was ironic that it became such a uh, a learning experience for so many of the hardcore fishermen out there. That is, that, that is really interesting. And, you know, I think a shift that needs to happen with, you know, a, a united voice. I think we can make a lot of change. Yeah. Before I let you go, um, I want to ask you just a couple more questions. The, the one the one thing I wanted to ask you, since you're dealing with um, the city of Fort Lauderdale and the city of Miami, I mean, what expectations do you think are realistic from the local leaders? Because as I was talking to the, to the mayor and to the commissioners and stuff, um, I was kind of really thrown back on how much they didn't know. And you only know what you know. But what do you think the... Um, a realistic expectations from our local leaders as far as getting, especially the sewage cleaned up. Yeah. I mean, I think we should expect a lot from our local leaders. So keep the pressure on. I would absolutely keep the pressure on, but I would caution people to, you know, I guess do your research before you you communicate with your elected officials. Um, Make sure you're talking to the the folks that have the jurisdiction over the problem you want to fix. Um, like, for example, in Miami, uh, our county really runs our uh, sewage treatment infrastructure. 
so, you know, I think a lot of times people might go to like city officials and talk about something that's in county jurisdiction and they may not get, get very far and then get frustrated. Uh-huh. Um, so um, I think it's really important for people to get to know their elected officials. Um, it's your elected officials work for you. They represent you. And um, I think, you know, if you're a person who cares about the water and who's passionate about making change, not only should you know who all of your representatives are, but they should know who you are. Right. Um, make sure they know they know you and um, that you have an important role in educating them uh, about what's important to you and what's important to your community and what you see as a problem. Because, um, you know, I think it is true. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. Right. Uh, and I've been told that nagging is one of my greatest skills in the world. So <laughs> I encourage everybody to nag, nag your local elected officials, but uh, always be polite um, and, and do your research. And if you do those things, you know, it, you'll, you'll make change. Cool. Very cool. And lastly, the water test that you're going to be doing here in Fort Lauderdale. Um, can you kind of just break them down a little bit for us? Um, like, how do we read these water tests? And then how do we translate exactly what you're doing? Can, can you kind of give us some insight on that? Because I've looked at some water tests over the, over the last um, 12 months, and I, it's hard for me to get through them. There's a lot of charts and weird things to look at, and I'm not sure exactly what I'm yeah. looking at. Yeah, so the um, the Swim Guide app that we put all of the water quality information into is a free app you can download, and it's super easy. The whole point is to make it as easy as possible for the public to get the water quality information and to make decisions about whether or not they want to go in the water as a result. Um, so you'll just see a, a beach location or um, a canal or uh, another waterway that says red or green mm-hmm. on the and if it's red, it has exceeded the bacteria levels that are recommended by the EPA for swimming. Um, and if it's green, the levels were, were low enough where, um, you know, we aren't alarmed about uh, bacteria in the water. Now, the caveat to this is there's testing once a week. You could test on Monday and on Wednesday there's some kind of a spill. And, um, you know, we wouldn't know unless it was reported or picked up the following week. So, right. um water's really dynamic. It moves. Um, it can change on the tide. It can change with the weather. It can change with a spill or another occurrence going on. So um, weekly testing is, is kind of like as much as we can do. And, and we've found that, that it gives, does give a pretty good estimate of the cleanliness of the water. But, um, you know, it's not daily testing and it's not for the minute that you're getting into the water. But you can use that as a guide um, or you can use swim guide as a guide um, for for when there's water quality problems. And then there's also um, a little pie chart on there and you can click that and it'll give you the historical water quality data over the last year, how often that site has passed or failed water quality tests. Okay. Um, And we run the samples in our lab. So, and it takes about 24 hours for the samples to run. So we collect them um, in Miami. We collect them on Monday. We get the results on Tuesday. Um, in Broward, I think we're collecting on Tuesday. We'll have the results Wednesday, gotcha. um, as I think the, the schedule we're going to go for. Now, now the um, the bacteria levels in the testing. What 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 are we looking for? What do we want to see, and what do we don't want to see? Like, how does that break down? 
Um, so 70, um, most probable number of colony forming units of bacteria is uh, the level that the EPA has determined you need to stay below in order to uh, recommend swimming. Mm-hmm. And um, we're looking for bacteria that's called fecal indicator bacteria. So it doesn't mean that um, it came from sewage, but it's bacteria that the EPA has over a long time in many studies found is commonly associated with sewage bills. Okay. Um, and so we're not determining where the bacteria came from. We're just looking at how much uh, bacteria was in the sample. And um, that what the EPA has said is, um, you know, statistically, if it's over a certain limit, you're more likely to get sick from contacting it, basically. So 70 is the threshold number. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then what, I mean, traditionally, what do you see or what have you been seeing when you're doing the testing? Is is it most normally below 70 or is it normally above 70? And I don't mean just for Fort Lauderdale. I mean, wherever you're doing testing. So we're starting the Fort Lauderdale testing in January. Um, but around the sites around Miami, we, you know, there are certain sites that are hotspots, frankly, like the, we have a location in the Miami river. Mm-hmm. Um, but even there, you know, more often than not, uh, the bacteria levels are below the threshold, but, um, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a mix. I would say like some sites are even up to 25% um, over the threshold, which we consider pretty high. Um, it's kind of like the upper limit of what we see in the sites we're sampling now. But the majority of the time you're, you're saying you're, you're 70 or under most of the time. Most of the time. But right, that's know, good news. I, I think like, you know, if... I'm, Twenty, even twenty percent is, is is I would think pretty high for a failure rate. Uh, because well, I can't wait. I can't wait to start seeing the the. It's going um, to be very interesting. It's going to be very interesting, and a lot of the sites are in um, in uh, the intercoastal waterway. So it. Um, uh, wait a minute. Let me. Uh, you might want to edit that out because let me double check that. <laughs> okay. What's the, what's the final. I, I what have, the final site locations are because uh, we actually, I up there last week and um, checked out that we had access at all the sites by on foot to sample. So, you know, if you need anything, um, you know, I live right here. Oh, I know, amazing. I know the intercoastal Fort Lauderdale. I grew up on Muscles Boulevard. I mean, like every last nook and cranny of it. So, I mean, even if it's something as simple as parking and that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, I may hit you up for that, Jeff. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. Hit me up for it because it's not an easy place to navigate around. Um, um, used to be, yeah. but, it, you know. That would be great, actually. And, and you know, I expect lots of reports, Jeff, about what you're seeing on the water. Um, yep. You're seeing problems. Well, I, um, I've been putting up quite a bit of reports and... I'm just, um, I don't know if you know, but you've created um, a character in yourself that people are emotionally attached to. I can't tell you how many people have said, have you spoken to Rachel from the Miami Waterkeeper yet? She's phenomenal. <laughs> She's fantastic, whatever. And I'm just like, no, I haven't spoken to her yet. <laughs> but I mean, you've, uh, you've, you, you, you've, you've sparked something, some sort of emotion where you're getting through to these people. And I've watched a lot of environmentalists um, do some great things that have never, ever got that kind of momentum. So congratulations on that. Wow, that is 
very kind of you, Jeff. I, you know, as I'm you just said, telling you what I see and what I hear. A team effort and a lot of hard work. Um, but I, you know, and I think the community has been been amazing and and really supportive. So we're we're really thrilled to be doing this work in Fort Lauderdale. Well, Rachel, I appreciate you being on the Real Guy podcast. I think the audience is absolutely going to love the episode. A lot of great information. And um, I'm going to get together with you and I'm going to help you promote that next call to action. Perfect. We'll definitely stay in touch on that. All right. Sounds good. All right, Jeff. Thank you so much. It was great chatting. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate you. Talk to you later. (laughs) Take care. Bye.